pray for you this coming week. Romans 9. If you're visiting with us today, we've been in Romans for a while. We're in chapter 9 these days. And I want to read our text uh, this morning. Romans 9, 1 through 5, Paul is brokenhearted over his, the spiritual state of Israel, his kinsmen. Even though they had great benefits, that they were called by God, they were adopted, they saw the glory of God in unmistakable ways. He entered into covenant with them. He gave them the law. They experienced worship in the tabernacle and later in the temple. They received the promises of God. They were the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even still, they, by and large, were in unbelief. And in verse 6, he says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Verse 7. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. In other words, if you're from Abraham, that doesn't mean you're going to be saved by natural birth. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as as offspring. For this is what the promise said. God said to Abram, about this time, Abraham, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather, Isaac, so as we're tracking the generations here, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac was born to them. Isaac married Rebekah. She conceived children from Isaac. And though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told when she inquired about the civil war going on in her womb, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And as you trace Romans 9, he refers to at least 15 passages from the Old Testament to make his case. Before we dig into the text, I want to take a step back and just kind of share a little personal journey by way of introduction, and then actually the first point of the message will fall under that category. I was born again, I was born again in the summer of 1985, and I was committed to the idea that my response to the gospel was an exercise of my will. I chose, I decided. After all, that's what I learned um, in seventh grade civics. It's the air we breathe in America. Someone once shared that God was a gentleman in my understanding and and would never impose himself on my decision making. As one little booklet described it that I read early in my Christian life, salvation is really like a democratic election. God cast his vote, Satan cast his vote, and I cast the deciding vote, which I came to later see is awful theology. God and Satan are not equal, and if it was left to me, I would never make the right vote. So that wasn't good news. Please understand, if, if I was asked at that time, what happened to you? I would have said, I was saved. 
God redeemed my life from destruction. He has moved in my life and opened my eyes and heart to follow him and I'll never be the same. The trajectory of my, of my life is really to pursue his glory. This is the testimony of every true believer. I once was lost, but now I'm found. If conversion doesn't bring a change of life, you really need to ask yourself, was I truly saved? Was I born again? And yet on the other hand, as I process my conversion, I reasoned that in love, God had proposed salvation in the gospel, but I had clinched the relationship by the exercise of my will. My thinking at the time about the freedom of the will is captured well in this thoughtful reflection of a dear brother. I absorbed it, freedom of the will. I absorbed it from the independent, self-sufficient, self-esteeming, self-exalting air that you and I breathe every day of our lives in America. The sovereignty of God meant that he can do anything with me that I give him permission to do, as I understood it. When I entered seminary, relatively as a new believer, just three years as a Christian, entered seminary and I was encouraged in my position and believed that it would be unthinkable that God was the unconditional decider of who would be saved and who would not be saved. How could that be? The questions filled my mind and troubled my heart. The concept of unconditional election was not an option in my my thinking. There's no way that could be. I will not relate to God in those terms. I questioned the fairness of it all. After all, how could God be considered loving and just and fair if he did not give everyone a chance? I was later challenged on all of these questions and have come to a resolve on them. I don't know everything about these deep and perplexing questions, but I I think there's a way to reason with them biblically and scripturally. And if he were truly in charge and truly loving, how come he didn't choose everybody? Now, I think the Apostle Paul was a good attorney in the sense that he brought up things in advance of them being asked. And uh, I think these questions that I've just posed were on his mind in Romans 9. They were on his mind in Romans 9, and in this chapter, he presents the doctrine of election in no uncertain terms. In fact, he begins this discussion by laying out three generations of election. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we see it's picked up elsewhere in the New Testament that every believer falls into that category. If we believe that God exercises any control over history, any control over our lives, as his people, then we must come to terms with election one way or the other. It's not like we can say, well, the Bible doesn't have anything to say about it. Uh, We hit it head on in Romans 9. There's no escape from it. So how are we to understand the concept of election, predestination, which we've already looked at in Romans 8? How are we to understand these questions? Again, if you would indulge me, before we take a deep dive into Romans 9, 6 through 12 this morning, Before we get there, I just want to kind of elaborate a little more on my own journey with this struggle. I realize some in our congregation may struggle with this deeply, intensely. Others have come to a place of peace will resolve with it. Just remember, I'm a pastor, not a bully. 
And as we're walking through these things together, I'm wanting to set them before you as a fellow struggler and share the conviction of my heart on the matter from the word. Uh, Let me tell you about a crucial conversation. If you're tracking this in the insert, this is number one. A crucial conversation I had with an evangelist about 30 years ago. And uh, we were discussing unconditional election, sovereign election, of which he was convinced and I was not. uh, By unconditional election, I mean that God, uninfluenced by any reaction or giftedness or abilities on our part, that God, uninfluenced and before creation, predetermined certain people to be saved. That implies that there were, were a larger group that were not, namely humanity. So I was against it. And he was for it. And he had, convin- he was, he had been convinced otherwise from the study of the Bible. And I said, well, uh, we have to choose or otherwise we're nothing more than robots. We're iron filings sucked up by a magnet. And he gently said that my argument wasn't even discussed in Scripture. And that I was arguing a scenario that's not true. That God is sovereign and we are unwilling apart from his grace in our life ever to come to him or be interested in him. This was an important moment in my Christian life. If you insist on the freedom of your will being the decisive factor in your salvation, you're going to have a very hard time finding that scriptural support in the Bible. Jesus taught that our will is in bondage. He said in John 8, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Uh, Jesus said that we are incapable of coming to him apart from the Father's help. Furthermore, when you read the readings of the Apostle Paul, he describes our lost human condition as being dead in our trespasses and sins. In Ephesians 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And dead people don't make decisions. This was the domino for me. Really. Really centering on my ability to make the right decision concerning salvation. And when I began to look at how the Bible described the human condition apart from Jesus Christ, it was a hopeless situation for me. Dead people don't make decisions. They, they need a resurrection, which is pr- precisely how salvation is described for the sinner like us. We were once dead, now we've been made alive in Christ. In fact, that's exactly what Paul said in Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. So this conversation over 30 years ago had a a domino effect in my, my, my beginning to understand where the emphasis in the New Testament was concerning salvation. And I'll quote, again, last week's comment. It sounds like you're pointing us back to God alone on this. There you go. There you go. If Scripture declares that my sin has placed me in helpless bondage and that I don't see God or want Him for who He is and that left to myself I would never pursue Him, what hope do I have? apart from the grace of God moving in this world through the preaching of the gospel and the means that he has planned. What hope do I have? Try harder? Oh, really? To seek some sense of humility that I might get to salvation? 
to come to a place of brokenness where I might really yield to the call of the gospel, to pull myself up by some exertion, I need what only God can do through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word. It's interesting, you know, because often when we talk about God's sovereignty, people automatically default to something we're not talking about. Like, uh, well, that means there's no such thing as evangelism. Why pray? And we come back to how about because those are the means God has called us to to seek him and to live by. I think of uh, the, the reference in Acts 13, verse 48, where Paul is preaching and the Gentiles heard this and they began to rejoice and glorify the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So you, tra- you trace the book of Acts, they're sowing the gospel freely. That is the means that God uses to call sinners to himself. So a crucial conversation. That was a domino effect for me. Secondly, a study of the scripture and the multiple references to election. So it's not like we can say, it's not in the Bible. It's not a sidebar, friends. It's not. It's not everything, but it's an important way to understand the Bible. It led me to see that God chose Israel. Of all the nations of the world, he chose Israel. Why? Because they were the biggest, the mightiest, they had the most often, none of that. In Deuteronomy 7, it says God chose Israel because he loved, loved Israel, and he, it pleased him to do so. He chose the prophets. Would you listen to the call of Jeremiah? Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you, the Lord speaking, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Jesus chose 12 disciples, only 12 to be his. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. That you might be with me and that you might bear fruit. Jesus taught election in no uncertain terms. He said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him, no one. In Luke 4, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he entered the synagogue and was given the scroll of Isaiah 61. And he read on that occasion, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recover the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord. Then he rolled up the scroll, handed it to the attendant, went and sat down and said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your sight, which caused no small stir. And then he went on to teach this He said, in the days of Elijah, there were many widows in Israel, but he went to the widow of Zarephath, a pagan widow. There were many widows in Israel. God sent Elijah to the widow at Zarephath to minister to her, to a woman who was a widow. And then he said, there were many lepers in Israel during the time of Elisha, but God sent Naaman to Elisha, another foreigner, And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with rage and pushed him to the edge of the cliff, but he walked among their midst. He was speaking of election. There were many widows. There were many lepers, and God was fulfilling his ministry through his prophet. In John 17, Jesus referred to every believer as being a loved gift from the Father to the Son, And then all through the New Testament, the church 
is called the chosen of God. I, I find it interesting in reading Second John, it begins with this, to the elect lady. Who talks like that? The chosen of God. It's not used once or twice. It's used throughout the New Testament. We are the chosen of God, not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is. And that this is a, a message presented in the New Testament that should cause us to praise him, that should cause us to be faithful in, in knowing that evangelism is hopeful and successful, and also to comfort us when life is hard, that our God is over it all, and that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. I, I think next would be something that I'm hoping this conversation, for some of you for the first time, others, we've, we've, we've taught on this through the years, but to, to recognize there, there are tensions in, in the Bible that need to be held in, need to be held taught. They need to be received, not as contradictions, but as mysteries and paradoxes. And I, I imagine even now some are like, yeah, but, and by the way, I just would open um, freely anytime, but certainly on this subject, you have questions, you want to talk to me, feel free to email me or call me, and we can meet and would be glad to do that. But the, the yeah buts, you know, you got John 3.16 over here, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. How can what you've just read in Romans 9 and other places and things that you've said uh, reconcile with that? Well, we hold up John 6.44, no one comes to me unless the Father draws me, or unless, unless the Father draws them, and God so loved the world. How, how are we to reconcile those? How about if we hold them both together and to say that they're both true? Amen. And that it's not a contradiction. That within the mystery of God, those things are true, which causes us to think in deeper layers about doctrine and how that applies to our life. What about 1 Timothy 2, which, which says that God desires all people to be saved? How do we hold that up against others which speak of his electing love, choosing some and passing over others? And what about 2 Peter 3, 9, which speaks about God which says in the text, he's not wishing that any should perish. And often in this conversation, we ignore Romans 9 and give no attention to it and run to these other verses where there's a phrase that he desires all to be, uh, uh, all to be saved, desires none to perish, um, and we hold those up as the catch-all for everything else. I'm saying they need to be held in tension and that it will inform us on how we are to understand them. And then I would mention lastly, as a personal note, the impact on life and ministry. Uh, just, you know, with a growing conviction that this is indeed what the Bible teaches, every gathering of this church, the gospel is preached. Pick a gathering. It's preached in one form or another. Every gathering of this congregation, sinners are called to repent of their sins and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's not some fiction. That's, that's a real offer of the gospel in real time. So any view of election or predestination or anything else that we're looking at in this text that would undercut that as saying that's not important is, is out of bounds. Every member of this body is charged under the, under the authority of Christ and his call on our lives to be a witness to proclaim what Christ has done for you in the gospel and to make disciples of all. I was thinking uh, recently, we, 
in the last 25 years, we've sent 120 teams to the nations of this world on short-term missions. The church has has been in almost all of the apartment complexes, neighborhoods and subdivisions, and trailer parks in this parish knocking on doors. So we are a church that longs for the word of God to be preached and heralded, and that this is, this is behind God fulfilling this mystery, that before the foundation of the world, he chose us in Christ and is gathering a people for his name. And our hope in it all is that God would be honored in his word. I felt like that was an important thing to maybe share with you on the front end of diving into Romans 9. So let's get there. Romans 9, notice with me, secondly, God's word has not failed. This has been a burden on Paul's heart. He says in verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. And they were thinking that. Why were they thinking that? Well, because God had made all these promises and given all these privileges to Israel, and they, in large part, lay uh, in unbelief as a nation. And he even says that that he he would be willing to be cursed in order that Israel would be saved. Sincere, but impossible. But Paul goes on to say, God's word has not failed. Concern over Israel's unbelief and God's promises. He states that the promises to Israel will not fail and have not failed because God never promised that every ethnic Israelite would be saved. And that's what he says here. It's not as though the word of God has failed. It hasn't failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. God has an elect remnant. And we can understand how that may affect the church in Rome, which is made up of Jew and Gentile, and more and more Gentiles are coming in. If Israel is on the spiritual rocks, what hope do we have to make it to the finish line? God will always have his remnant that he has chosen. And here, in point three, he mentions three generations of election. Verses seven through 13. He mentions Abraham. First, Paul goes back to the earliest moments in the history of the Jewish people. Let me go ahead and read seven. Not all are children of Abraham because they're of his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So Paul takes them back to the earliest moments of their history where God called Abraham. And throughout the Old Testament, whenever God's promises and covenants wanted to be established, they would reference Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenant that God established with them. And to show that election operated there. Sometimes it's argued that this is not referring to individuals, but to nations. This whole section. This is talking about nations. Well, that doesn't resolve the problem. What are nations made up of? There you go. They're made up of individuals. And we'll see why that kind of falls apart in just a moment. Paul is dealing with individuals, namely Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he makes clear that election impacts in individuals when he chose Jacob and not Esau. That's what the text says. 
So uh, in Romans 9, Paul is trying to explain why not all Israel has been saved and why the fact that they have not been saved does not mean that God's purpose or promise have failed. In the case of these three fathers, he is going to show that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob became what they were by election. He says that that God's purpose of election might continue in verse 11. Election is obvious in the case of Abraham. Paul assumes that they know, they, they, they know who he's talking about. And every Jew would know that. They would know everything about Abraham. Maybe you're not as familiar. Abraham comes onto the pages of Scripture in Genesis 11 where his father is mentioned. And in chapter 12, it's God calls Abram out of the Ur of the Chaldees and has a call on his life. He's called Abram back then. Later he would be called Abraham because God promised that you would be the father of many nations. And so his name was changed to that. But in Genesis 12, it says that the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, leave your father, your land, your everything familiar to you, and go to the place that I will show you. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And so Abram went as the Lord had told him. Now Abram had come from a pagan ancestry. There were no believers in his life. He had been born in Ur. There was no knowledge of the living God in Ur. They worshiped idols. In fact, in Joshua 24, turn there with me, Joshua 24. Often we think of this chapter when we think of Joshua's great declaration as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But notice how he begins this chapter really as a warning to Israel about defecting. He, he goes back to Abraham and he says in Joshua 24, verse 2, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, that was Abraham's father, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor. And they served other gods. Abraham was an idol worshiper. One commentator describes him as a moon gazer, a star worshiper. They served other gods. Now, I want you to look at the verbs here. I know you may not get into verbs and reading into the Bible. Look at the verbs. Verse 3, then I took your father Abraham. God said, I took him. Amen. Beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring. I made them many and I gave him Isaac. Verse 4, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir. So this is Israel's heritage. Abraham, Abraham was not sitting in the Ur of the Chaldees thinking that he wanted to go start a major movement in religion. God came to him and called him out of that. And what was true of Abraham, in essence, is true of every believer. That God calls us out of whatever to himself, where the gospel makes sense. And maybe you're saying, well, if God chooses and God elects, what's our part in that? Well, let me be clear that we must believe, we must repent, we must obey, 
we must believe all of that is true. And that salvation is, in every sense, a free use of our decisions and our will, but the difference is that our, our, our wills have been changed by the grace of God to see who he is and to believe. Abram did not seek God, God sought Abraham. Abraham did not seek God, God sought him and called him. Now, let's move on to this second generation back at Romans 9 of Isaac, the second generation of election. Picking up in verse 7 again, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And you remember that he had a son named Ishmael that was really born out of a misguided um, relationship with Hagar. And Ishmael was born. And actually, Abram was wondering, how am I going to, how, how is this great nation going to happen? I don't have a son. And um, I'm getting older, and she is too. And so really, Isaac is a supernatural birth. The writer of Hebrews speaks about her well beyond the age of childbearing. Abraham too, as good as dead, the writer of Hebrews says. He was as good as dead. And God kept his promises through Isaac. Through Isaac your offspring shall be, not Ishmael. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. And you remember what she did. (laughs) She's laughing behind the tent flap. Right. (laughs) And my favorite rebuke in the Bible, I mention it every time, is God coming to Sarah and saying, well, why did you laugh? I didn't laugh. Oh, no, but you did. You you did laugh. And Isaac means laughter. And I imagine the, the, the day, the evening that Isaac was born, Abraham walked out as good as dead, walked out of his tent, looked up into the sky and saw the stars And he remembered the promise of God. Your descendants will be like the stars of the sky. The point of this statement is that Abraham, in Romans 9, had a son, the son of promise, not the son of the flesh. Ishmael was born of Abraham's natural powers. Isaac was conceived when Abraham was past the age of engendering children. And when Sarah was past the age of conceiving and giving birth. It is the same with our spiritual conception and new birth. It's the outworking of God's sovereign grace and is supernatural. I would pray in my preaching to recover the claim that the new birth is a miracle of God. Your salvation is a miracle of God. It is a work of God in your life that rescues you from a domain of death and brings you to a resurrection life spiritually that you might see the wonder of who he is. There's a third generation here, Jacob. Jacob, verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. So you have Abraham and, um, and Sarah who gave birth to Isaac. Isaac married Rebekah and she conceived and had twins in her womb. And they're having a fist fight 
in the womb and Rebecca's burdened about it. And she inquires of the Lord, what's going on in here? And the Lord said, you have two nations in your womb. The older, the older will serve the younger. Now notice how Paul elaborates on that in verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. This, this worked out as God established, not through a paralysis of human experience. Please see this, and I think you need to go back and listen to Jared's sermon from October on this very subject. There was not a paralysis of, of human experience here. Esau did what Esau wanted to do. And Jacob did what Jacob wanted to do. And all the while, God was doing what he wanted done in this whole picture. I think that's, I think that's a, a picture of, of start to finish of God's sovereign reign and his whole theme of redemption, that he's calling a people to himself. And he does that through the general preaching of the gospel. He does that on mornings like this morning, where you hear that your sins have separated you from God and that you need the Lord Jesus Christ and that bears witness with your spirit. And in real time, you turn to the Lord and are saved as you trust in Christ alone. This was worked out in the flow of human life and for the glory of God. Now, I want to just spend the closing moments, just a few more moments, on trying to process this a little bit. We're going to come back to Romans 9. We're set on this for the next few weeks. It demands this kind of study. Um, but I, I want to try to provide maybe some application here. God's purpose of election. God's purpose of election. I, I want to just remind us that it's possible to entertain scenarios in our minds that are not true. Like somebody who wants to be saved and God wouldn't let them. That's a scenario that doesn't exist in the Bible. The, the free offer of the gospel is for you now. How do I know God is for me? The answer is, what do you do with Jesus Christ? Do you love him and seek to follow him? Do you trust him? Do you believe him? Or do you go and do what you want to do? So there's no one who wants to be saved that God's going to reject at the judgment. And so when we look at his purpose of election, I want to look at 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 and 9. There are several verses here I put in your insert, and I want to move quickly to them, and you can give look at them uh, this week. I pray you would. 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 9. Therefore, Paul says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering of the gospel by the power of God. And then he goes on to say in verse 9, 
who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. What I would want us to begin to process is that this purpose of election, why it's taught in the Bible, is to remind us of God's eternal scope and salvation in eternity past to eternity present. He says in the last of verse nine, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. That scripture takes us to eternity past. In Ephesians one, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. From eternity past to eternity future, the plan of God for you, believer, is that you have full assurance that God is for us and no power of hell or scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand. God purposed to gather a people for himself to be redeemed and rescued from the effects of sin, to be saved to sin no more and to be conformed into the image of Christ. It's eternal in scope. Notice with me secondly that this purpose of election is to conform us to the image of Christ. Turn the page to Romans 8 and I'll remind you of uh, our, our study of verses 29 and 30. What is the, the hope of our assurance? What is the hope of our security and salvation? Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And so this golden link of redemption, his foreknowledge, which means to know intimately, it's not a forecast or a, uh, an anticipation of what people are gonna do in making decisions, it's, a, it's, a, it's to set his love upon. And he marked the way for that to happen, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And notice where this takes us. Foreknowledge takes us to eternity past, but he goes from foreknowledge, predestined, Called, verse 30, called. This is God's effective call. This is the call that came to the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road and said, you're a chosen instrument of mine. I'm calling you to myself. And Paul believed. It's an effective call. I shared with you on the front end of this message, I remember the summer I was converted to Christ. While you may not mem- remember the time and the moment and the date and the, where, where it was, you just know you once were this, but now you're this. You once were dead, but now you're alive. You once were in the domain of darkness, but now you're in the kingdom of his dear son. And his agenda is what matters most in your life. So it goes from foreknowledge and predestination, eternity past on the mind of God, called and justified, that's in real time. God's call comes to us through Christ and the gospel. We believe, we are justified, we are declared legally righteous in the courtroom of heaven. And notice this, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, Paul mentions it in the past and we've brought this up previously. We would think of glory when? Glory's a future event for the believer. He's speaking of it in the past. What Paul is saying is, so sure are the promises of God that those who are called and justified will also be glorified. 
to be conformed to the image of Christ, saved to sin no more. All of this, thirdly, magnifies the grace of God. Left to myself, I perish. The reason the gospel is good news for the sinner is because we were once lost and our great Redeemer, our great Savior found us. And all of this brings glory to God alone. I I wanna close with John 17. We'll close here for this morning and then bring our service to a conclusion. John 17, this rightly, I think, could be called the Lord's Prayer. It was hours before Jesus was arrested. You get the sense as you read John 17 as he's facing the torture of um, the Roman punishment, the crucifixion pain, and even worse, the spiritual separation from the Father in the moment of his death as an atonement for our sins. He prays in this way in verses one through five, and he's praying that it would bring glory to God alone. Jesus had spoken these words. He lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour's come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. Who talks like that? And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That's unbelievable. Allow that to blow your mind. These inner Trinitarian exchanges in John 17... But that, that, that phrase in verse two, to give eternal life to all whom you've given him, salvation is pictured in this way in this text, that, that those who are saved are a love gift from the Father to the Son to be showcased for all of eternity to the praise and glory of God. Now, we don't have time to go through all of this prayer, but I do wanna take you down to verse 20. Because in this prayer, Jesus prays for himself. He prays for his disciples in verse 6 through um, 12. And then he prays for us. Verse 20, for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. So I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all, that they all may be one as just, just as you are, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved, and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's unbelievable. 
Three closing remarks. I promise to land the plane on this. I, I always give a lot of slack in the rope with regard to this doctrine. And where I want you to be ultimately is in the Bible trying to discern what's true. And what I don't, what I don't mean about that is keep reading the Bible and one day you'll see it the way I see it. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. But I want you in the Bible trying to understand these tensions and to be blessed by them. Because if we wrestle with that angel, it will bless us. Spurgeon said, I've endeavored in my ministry to preach to you not a part of the truth, but the whole counsel of God. But I cannot harmonize it, nor am I anxious to do so. I'm sure all truth is harmonious. And to my ear, the harmony is clear enough, but I cannot give you a complete score of the music or mark the harmonies. I must leave the chief musician to do that. So wrestle with the angel with me. And may we be blessed by sections of scripture that we've looked at today. Do you want a savior? Do you feel that you need a savior? Are you this morning conscious of your sin? Do you believe the truth of what we've said and sung and read about Jesus Christ? Do you sense this morning, he died for me, I need him. Do you feel that you of yourself cannot offer a payment for your sins and that you cannot save yourself? Would you turn to him and believe on him and follow him this day? to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. We're gonna give an opportunity to respond in just a moment. Let's pray together as our worship team comes to turn our eyes upon him. Father, we're thankful for your word which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. I pray for these closing moments that we would give ourselves completely to you. Thank you for this time. Lead us now, Lord, to be fully surrendered to you and to walk in the obedience of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing. There needs-